Hey, it's Alan Carter. Here's what's on the podcast today. I'm not reopening. I'm just transitioning to a framework, trying to make sense of a new talking point from the Ford government. Mike Layton, the counselor from Toronto, on whether or not we really should spend all of this money of Toronto taxpayers on rebuilding the Gardner. Why are we doing that? And Billy Baker on learning to keep your friends as you get older, especially for men. Let's get to it. Oh, yeah. Pop the champagne. The kids have gone back to school. Hooray. Now, listen, I know parents out there in regions having a snow day, you're like, hey, hey, my champagne remains unpopped. The cork remains in the bottle. The bottle is in the snowbank. But the kids in Toronto back to class. Exciting. Coming up on the program. We're going to talk to a Mississauga mom less excited about the whole concept of sending the kids back because it's not like those champagne corks flew off into the air without trepidation, without concern. We're all a little bit worried about it. We're going to talk about that. How was your family day weekend? You tired of uh, only looking at your family? Like, can't stare at you people anymore. I need to look at somebody else. Coming up in the radio program, we're going to talk about loneliness, and specifically men, I am talking to you. Coming up on the program, author Billy Baker joins me to talk about his really hysterical, funny new book about men and friendship. We need to hang out. It's billed as a comic adventure through the loneliness epidemic. What is it about us Guys, we get to a certain age, like, I don't need any more friends. I got the ones, and then the, and then they get slowly whittled away, and then there's a pandemic, and you don't see anybody anymore, and you're only looking at your family. Now, just in case you have been distracted by the snow or the warm, warm glow of a long weekend staring at said family, can I remind you just one moment of the advice of the health experts in the province of Ontario to the provincial government? Dr. Steiny Brown, in the modeling update that we had last Thursday, said the variants, the VOCs, that's everybody's favorite thing right now, that's the scary thing going on in the world, the VOCs, the variants of concern, variants of concern. I'm thinking of starting a death metal band, variants of concern. Dr. Brown said that if we relax restrictions... If we ease things in the province of Ontario, the modeling shows that best case scenario, best case scenario, we see five to 6,000 cases a day by the end of March. We're under 1,000 today. And so the warning has been clear and been stark. If we reopen, things will go badly. Doug Ford was pressed about this in the legislature this morning. Doug Ford? We aren't reopening it, uh, the province. We're transitioning. You see, we're not reopening. We're transitioning. We're transitioning to the framework. You will recall that the framework is a framework, and we're all on a different color code. And It looks like next week, for example, Toronto will go into gray. Other regions are in different colors, and depending on what the color is in your region, you can get different things. I'm thinking we should get maybe some of those road signs. You know the road signs that they have for fire risk, for firefight risk, where you get the different colors? And that way you'll know if you're driving through a region, oh, honey, look, we're in a green zone. Let's pull off here. You know, you can get your nails done. I can get a haircut, maybe a face tattoo. We'll just... 
It's a green. See, that's how we would might be able to do that. Meanwhile, where are you right now? We're going to talk more about the reopening and whether or not we're reopening or transitioning coming up and your chance to weigh in on that on the program. But where are you right now? Because this is the, what I want to talk about right here. Where are you? Because if you're driving on the Gardner right now and you don't pay taxes, property taxes in the city of Toronto, you owe me a loony. Could you send me a dollar, please? Seriously, you want to tell me why my tax money should foot the bill for a major provincial artery? Did you know that 35% of the traffic on the Gardner comes from drivers who don't live in Toronto and don't pay taxes in the city? Matt Elliott, with an opinion piece in the Toronto Star today, pointing this out, that $2 billion of the 2021 to 2030 capital plan for the city of Toronto for the transportation department, will be spent entirely to rehabilitate the gardener. You know, we're fixing up that portion of it down there where it bends around. And that's 38% of the total transportation-related infrastructure spending in the city of Toronto. So what's going to happen is we're going to spend all this money fixing up the gardener. And as a result, other roads, other infrastructure is going to suffer. And so... For the benefit of somebody from Newmarket so they can get to Oakville super quick, my car is going to be probably lost in a sinkhole somewhere. I'll just be down here in the sinkhole. Councillor Mike Layton is a member of the City Hall Budget Committee, and he recently asked for details on the implications of the Gardner spend and what it means for Toronto's budget. That motion was defeated. The budget comes to the uh, City Hall floor later on this week. Mike Layton is on the line. Counselor, welcome. Good morning, Alan. Why can't we see the details and the implications of this on the budget? You know, I think it's um I think it's a shortcoming about many people in politics is they're afraid to say they were wrong. And they're afraid to look at the facts and have the facts presented to them in a way that might take away from their um, from from the the outcome that they want to the political outcome that they want to see. So in the case of the gardener, like it was a big debate at city council, and there were was a lot of discussion about what the the right decision should be for how we move forward, and um, and the and it came down to a very political question: Do we spend this amount of money? saving just a couple minutes of time for a, a small a, a small number of individuals. And as you've mentioned, not all that live in Toronto, but I would, I would say that most that would be using that portion, or a majority perhaps, um, was it worth it? Rather than benefit from unlocking land that the city owns and uh, uh, building a transportation corridor that, uh, uh, that, that was more conducive of being in a downtown area. But Councilor, are you are you suggesting reopening that debate, or or was that the? Well, I think that's at the core of this debate. Do we spend an extra an extra eight hundred million dollars rehabilitating one small part of the of the road, or do we say, you know, we're we have a new transit plan down through that neighborhood now that we didn't have when we had that debate? We had uh, we have new uh, uh, new land holdings that want to develop more housing and employment lands down there. Do we know we're getting the best result? So why, why wouldn't we look at that before we spend almost a billion dollars on this one section, this tiny section measured in hundreds of, of meters of road, rather than just having an open debate on the subject? Like, that's all I was looking for. Tell me, tell me what the numbers are and whether or not we're at a point now that we could 
uh, re-examine whether or not that was the right decision that we made a couple of years ago. Is that the better? Is that the best uh, approach, or or should we be saying, okay, fine, fine, we need an artery, we need a road here, the, but why is it that it's Toronto's responsibility? Obviously, famously, Kathleen Wynne said, no, Toronto can't put a toll on that road. But then, so we need money from the province. Well, I think we have a we, we've got a lot of priorities we need to get money from the province for. Um, I, I would suggest that uh, that that affordable and supportive housing, that public transit, that the rest of our road network is far more deserving uh, than a, a section of road that we're going to spend a billion dollars on now that will will spend billions of dollars on in the in, in the future, rather than building uh, a, building a more appropriate scale road through that section of town and allow us to build more housing. I would just say that we probably have higher priorities. So why would we sink a billion dollars into uh, into a couple hundred meters of road when we could be putting it to better use? There will be people listening right now who say, like, I'm, you know, in the before times, and we're going to go back to the before times pretty soon. You know, I was stuck in traffic all the time, and that, that gridlock causes economic distress. It costs people money. It costs the economy overall. And that, therefore, you know, nobody likes to spend money on a freeway or a highway, but we need that infrastructure. We need it to go somewhere. Yes, and this, it, this wasn't about removing either highway completely. It was a small section of the Gardner as, as well as where uh, kind of at the junction where it hits the DVP that they did all the analysis about the number of cars and people impacted and, how, and by how long, and it wasn't that much. Like we're talking a couple minutes of time for, uh, uh, for, for what's measured in thousands of cars when we have a million people taking the TTC every day. Like, you tell me what deserves the, the, the billion-dollar investment, something that impacts a million people or a couple, or, 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 or a couple thousand people by a couple minutes each, time, uh, each day. I, I think that, that, like, I was clearly on one-sided decision there, and there, were, there was a multitude of positions on council, and it ended up going against uh, the, or, or went for the, the, the option that kept the elevated expressway through, through the length. But now that we actually have new transit plans through that corridor, as well as new new um, uh, new new landlords, new developers that have come forward saying, "Well, we want to activate this site for employment land." Why wouldn't we at least try to, uh, to 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 look at the decision again to say, "Are we getting the best bang for our buck, the best um, uh, the best transportation options for everyone going through this corridor?" And is there a way we can do it better? If they're not, if there's not, let's spend the eight hundred million now and and keep that uh, expressway elevated and. Uh, the, the problem is we're, we're losing an opportunity here, and, and it's been that way for a couple of years, I get it, but, but circumstances change. And, and the, the reality is politicians shouldn't be afraid to look at their decisions uh, with a new set, when a new sex, set of facts are presented, um, because it might draw us to a different conclusion. Speaking with uh, City Councilor, Toronto City Councilor uh, Mike Layton, is this a fait accompli, uh, Mike? Is this done, done deal? You know, I think we're going to keep talking about it until the actual work is done, uh, simply because I, I, I think there's a lot of people that think that our priorities uh, were misaligned then and, and that we need to, uh, to, to take a second look, given our, our financial position as a city, uh, given the, the changes that have happened in our transportation network, not due to COVID, but due to provincial announcements around new transit lines and those things. Uh, and and they, want us to make a, they, they want us to make an informed decision. I think it's... People want that more than anything else. They, they, they want to make sure that those that are spending their hard-earned uh, dollars in, in, in the form of taxes are making informed decisions about them. Councillor, always great to have you on. Mike Layton, appreciate you joining me.
Thanks very much, Alan. That is City Councilor Mike Layton talking about a section of roadway, a small section of roadway, that is the responsibility of the City of Toronto and that we are going to spend all of this money on, and it is going to have an impact on what else we can afford, especially, especially with the impacts of the pandemic on us. Coming up, we're going to talk more about going back to school, and I'm going to ask you a question about this. Doug Ford, can we get Doug Ford back in the house again? Doug Ford, are we reopening the province? We aren't reopening it, uh, the province. We're transitioning. Yeah, I was thinking of reopening today, but then I thought to myself, you know, that's not a good idea. I'm not going to reopen. Instead, I'm going to do this, Doug Ford. We aren't reopening it, uh, the province. We're transitioning. We're just going to transition to a framework, you see? Not reopening. I'm going to transition. Totally different thing. Totally different. Yes, you can go and shop in non-essential stores again in certain places. You can get personal uh, grooming Oh, my goodness, I could use some personal grooming so in certain areas, depending on where you are. But we are, again, Doug Ford, let me just let me get this straight. We are not. We aren't reopening it, uh, the province. We're transitioning. We're transitioning. So we're trying to see if that's good. Okay, so now your chance to weigh in on that coming right up at 416-870-6400. Give me a call. You agree with us transitioning into a framework. I know that's semantics, but it's important because there's been warnings that if we reopen, case counts are going to skyrocket. All of this at a time that we're sending our kids back to in-class learning. My kids went back, or at least one of mine went back today in Toronto because there was no snow day. I, I appreciate that in other regions that where there were, you know, parents were like, oh, please, please, let's, yes. And then they get up and like, are you kidding me? Snow day. Uh, but there is also concern out there. Now, schools are back, but you got a, a more detailed COVID screening form's got to be filled out. What else is different? Students in grade one and above are required to follow provincial health guidelines. Wear a mask, kid! Kind of wear a mask inside, outside, no playing on the playground, no playing together. Kids, stay apart. Um, so that's some of the things that are new and have put in place as schools reopen. To talk more about that, I am pleased to welcome to the program Romana Siddiqui, who is a parent of three and also an advocate with the Ontario Parent Action Network. Uh, hello and welcome. And were you disappointed when it was a school day today or relieved or a snow day today or relieved? Hi, thank you so much for having me. Actually, I was a little bit relieved, to be honest. Um, I've been having a lot of anxiety about kids going back to in-person learning. Why, why is that? Well, my kids have been in person um, in school from the beginning because last year it didn't go very well for us at all. Mm. Um, so I knew, and, and I have no questions about that um, under normal circumstances, in-person learning is optimal. But um, just with the way things have been rolling out, um, I I have increasing anxiety. Um, the, the case counts, yes, right now the second wave seems to be um, the numbers are coming down, hospitalizations, deaths, etc. But we've we're hearing all these warnings about 
this emerging transmission, um, the variants of concern, mm-hmm. and that's causing a lot of anxiety that, you know, this is sort of imminent in, in a few weeks. So opening schools and then potentially opening the rest of the economy, it's, it, it, it's making me lose faith in our leadership. Is it because it just doesn't sort of add up to? Because I, I, I think for a lot of parents that might be it, is that it, when you take all the different warnings, the warnings from Steiny Brown on the modeling table, but then you try and factor in what the what the premier is saying and, and what the medical officer of health, Dr. Williams, is saying, it somehow it doesn't seem to all add up. That's what I'm hearing. Is that what you feel? Absolutely. I mean, I'm not an expert, but it seems to me, it feels to me that this is sort of a, a deliberate attempt to 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 just muddy everything. Um, when you're trying to make assessments about case counts, or just in terms of simple math, you can't have tons of variables when you're trying to solve problems. So it's kind of like, oh, let's throw a little bit of this in. Let's reopen the economy. Oh, there's these variants of concerns. Oh, the vaccine rollout isn't working out as well. So it, to me, it, it's a little bit, it feels that maybe this is an attempt to avoid transparency and accountability. I mean, I, I feel like how can Ontario do both? How can we reopen from a lockdown and prevent a third wave at the same time? I don't think that that's possible unless there are specific measures put in place. And one of them would be, um, as medical professionals, our scientific and medical professionals are cautioning us to approach the reopening in a very systematic and slow way, not throw lots of variables mm-hmm. in. Right. And I think for a lot of us, too, who have followed this since the beginning, we've been told again and again and again that anything you do, whether you put on a restriction or take off a restriction or any public health thing that you do, you have to wait two weeks before you can see any kind of indication as to whether it worked or it had an impact on case counts. And so we're doing this. I understand it's it's not a reopening. It's a transition to a framework, but we're doing that within a week of you know, or sometimes at the same time as kids are heading back to school. And I think th- I think that's a concern. I, let me ask you ab- about the extra precautions that are in, in place. Do you take some comfort in those? Well, as far as I've been able to tell, the extra pre- precautions are that kids um, for kind- here in Peel region, at least I should say, because I'm in Peel region, that kids now are required um, from kindergarten to be wearing masks. But mm-hmm. again, in Peel Region, we had we had kids having to wear masks from grade one, so um, it's just to to like kindergarten JKSK um, lunchtime. Kids still have to take off their masks to eat. Now they will be having to wear masks when they're outdoors. I mean, so it's not that there's absolutely no additional safety precautions, but there's very few. Right. Um, it and, doesn't and, it doesn't change your thinking on it. Uh, let me yeah. ask you this: Do, do you? Um, agree with the sick kids' uh, assertion in their most recent study that the the most important thing, the most important thing that we can do, is get kids in school and keep them there. It is important in terms of the quality of their education, absolutely. But throwing them in without having the proper measures, all you're doing is reinforcing this this loop that we've been in for the past year of lockdown, um, having case counts go down, having an easing of restrictions, having case counts go back up, lockdown. Like it's just reinforcing that cycle. So if we actually want to get off of that crazy 
cycle, we as painful or as difficult or as challenging as it may be, we have to have leadership step in to put in proper key safety measures. I'm not an expert. I can't, I can't advise entirely about how to do everything, but I know that some of the steps that we need to take are things like having broader symptomatic and asymptomatic testing to improve the contact tracing, to have the proper isolation center supports. Smaller class sizes is another thing. Now, I understand, I mean, from the beginning, we've been asking for things like sure. having 15 students. But I understand that's very unlikely to happen. But now going back to school, I would say that I would not like to see more collapsing and combining of classes. Because I know, at least in my children's cases, that's already happened a few that's, times. That's happened. Um, yeah. And may happen again, especially with, with a number of concerns. I'm speaking with Romana Siddiqui, who is a... Uh, a parent in Peel Region and also an advocate as part of the Ontario Parent Action Network. I'm just going to play this for you real quick, and I want to get your reaction, and I'm going to take some calls. And, and this is, again, uh, Doug Ford, when pressed on, is the province reopening? And I, I want your assessment. Is, is this just semantics, or is there something more to this? Here's Doug Ford today. We aren't reopening it, uh, the province. We're transitioning. We're transitioning to the framework. Does that add up to you? I feel that he's um, walking back a little bit uh, because there has been a lot of pushback and concern that's being expressed. And to be fair, you do sometimes have to pivot as as things are um, evolving. So just yesterday, we in the news, we've had this situation about in Mississauga that in a building, in a condo building, there have been cases of new variants and they were testing um, on a volunteer basis the entire building. So that was something that was just breaking yesterday. So as the situation is rolling out, um, I'm, I'm not surprised to hear a slight shift in in the government's positioning of things. I'd be hopeful that they'd walk it back a little bit more. Romana, thank you so much for coming on today. Please be well and all the best to your family. Thank you, you too. Romana Siddiqui is a parent advocate for the Ontario Parent Action Network. How many friends do you have? Can you count your friends on one hand, two hands? You have to take off your shoes and socks to count all your friends. Okay, now let's just talk to the men in the room. How how many friends do you have, men? Now, let's just talk to the middle-aged men in the room. And that is exactly the discussion we're going to have with my next guest, who is a staff writer at the Boston Globe, who recently was called into the newsroom office and told, we have a perfect story for you. And I can tell you, as a journalist who has had that happen to me more than once, come on in, we got the perfect story for you. Almost always, the outcome is bad. But in this case, the pitch was about middle-aged men and their lack of friends, a friendship drought, if you would. And what followed sent my next guest on an examination of loneliness and the mechanics of making and keeping friends. And he details it all in a new book called We Need to Hang Out, a memoir of making friends. The book has been called An Entertaining Personal Perspective on Why Men Need Male Friends. Author Billy Baker joins me. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. So you 
you began this as a as a process of introspection of looking at your own life, and then from there looked at what it is that causes middle aged men to sort of say, nah, "I got enough friends; I don't need anymore." Yeah, it kind of both those tracks started simultaneously because I got conned into an editor's office with this this one of the oldest lies in journalism. We have a story you'd be perfect for, and I sat down, and they said, "We want you to write about how middle aged men have no friends." And as I'm sitting there going through this existential crisis in my head, the editor is rattling off all these facts about how we're in the midst of this loneliness epidemic and it has these real dire consequences for your mental and physical health. And so I I set up to write this article and, you know, I'm examining the science, uh, the, the bad news, but I'm also examining myself and realizing, you know, how quickly I've become that guy who, you know, when I think of my best friends, it's been, you know, a couple months since I've seen that guy. I haven't seen that guy in a couple of years. And next thing you know, I'm realizing that uh, I am perfect for this story because I'm caught up in this <laughs> quiet, silent epidemic that seems to only be getting worse. And so the book was me sort of moving on from diagnosing the cancer and my own, you know, involvement in it and trying to figure out what the cure is. And, it, and it's a funny quest because the cure is friendship. But that's weirdly complicated, especially when you're a middle-aged guy and, uh, and you know, these, these sort of dynamics are sometimes uncomfortable with men or they're the sort of things we're just not supposed to talk about. Uncomfortable with men. You detail this in your book, and it made me think of a bunch of different things. Like, for, uh, for example, like if I, you know, you go see a movie with, uh, you know, a, a, a straight male friend, you put the safety seat in the middle. And, you know, just dumb things we used to do growing up. We just did, and I just wondered, like, is gay panic kind of always part of this and this thing that gets in the way of men communicating with each other? I mean, there, that's a big factor in it. There is, in the saddest part about that, that that idea that any sort of intimacy is, is viewed as feminine or, or you, you get this sort of dog whistle word, like uh, you're, you're being gay, like it's a learned trait. Like it's not innate to us, it's cultural. So this is something that like someone taught us or, or you know, might be your older brothers or whatever it is, however it's handed down. It was painted as such a way where, you know, when you got to that honest, intimate point in a friendship or even if you were too physically close to someone, you know, you needed to hit the ejector seat and, and go back up to the surface level. And and, you know, I don't know, talk about do you see that game last night or whatever it might right. be, something that feels <laughs> safe and secure. <laughs> and, and and of course, all of this is in contrast with the way that women communicate. And you spend part of your books looking at that and you, you talk about the the way that men communicate as opposed to the way that women communicate, one being face-to-face and the other being shoulder-to-shoulder. Can you expand on that? Yeah, so so sociologists do these photo studies. They kind of creep around and take photos of people interacting without you knowing. And when you look at the patterns of how people interact, it's very clear that men and women are very different. So women talk face-to-face and men talk shoulder-to-shoulder. And there are a lot of instances where the world is intuitively built around that, like, you know, uh, box seats or, or a bar stool, things like that. But what it does is teach you sort of the ways then to build off of that. And, and men bond over an activity. We bond in ways where we are putting ourselves into that shoulder to shoulder position. And so that's the, the, the fundamental key for, for men. There's this phrase I use in the book, I call it velvet hooks. You need to find a sort of velvet hook activity that keeps you connected. 
But as you age, those, those velvet hooks naturally fall away. They're sports and school and, and, and whatever it might be. And when you move into, you know, the settled down parent, kids, that sort of thing, your velvet hooks are gone. And sometimes you, you think that it's just going to be your children. You're going to hang out with the other dads or whatever it might be. And sometimes that works. But really, it's about finding ways for a man, finding ways to be friends with your friends. And you need to think about it as finding an activity that will essentially put you into that shoulder-to-shoulder position. Did you, as part of this quest, look to make new friends, or or was this about trying to find those goal-oriented activities with, you know, friend lapsed friends that you already had? Yeah, so it, when I first started, I mean, my natural reaction was like, I got to get the band back together. I've got I've got to write <laughs> this shit. You know, I right after the article came out, I sent it to my two best friends in the world, and one of them said, "Oh, this is going to make this super awkward." But I forgot to tell you that I moved to Vienna, Austria. You know, so initially I was running around kind of repairing and I was also running around deep in the research of of friendship and of loneliness. And then I kind of got to a point where it was like I'd done great work with my friendships of the past, but I'm someone that no longer lives where they grew up. I'm only about an hour away from where I grew up, but I'm in a new community. So I realized that what I really needed was a way to have friendship a part of my daily life. It couldn't just be that weekend away that you maybe pull off once a year. It had to be something where I had a squad to hang out with. And I, and I use this sort of thought experiment of, like, I need somebody to hang out with on a Wednesday night. And so to do that, I, I essentially tried to start a fraternity for the middle-aged guys in my community to hang out on a Wednesday night. And that was a, you know, that was a, a tricky thing to do because I basically had to come out to people that I you know, in some instances only barely knew and say, hey, I like you. I felt a spark <laughs> of some sort with you. Do you want to come to my club? And the answer was yes. I, let me reintroduce you. Uh, Billy Baker is uh, a, a writer with the Boston Globe and has a, a new book out called We Need to Hang Out, a memoir of making friends. That sounds fascinating and absolutely unnerving to be the facilitator and to put yourself out there like that. Oh, it was, I mean, uh, you know, uh, I, of course, had to do it in a theatrical way. I sent everyone these sort of secret invitations and said, meet me at this barn at this time of night. And I got there early and it was just like panic. Like, what What am I doing? Am I really going to try and start a, a crew from scratch? But, you know, everybody that came up the stairs of that barn into the loft that night, you know, I think they were all people in the same general category as me, where you know, technically, we've been doing a lot of things right. Like, you know, we were we we had jobs and we had families and we were good dads and we take care of our kids. But like me, when you, when you look at your day to day life, like friendship just wasn't a priority. It wasn't oh. something that any of us were were thinking of each day in the same way. It's like I gotta I gotta work out and go to the grocery store. It wasn't like I gotta have some friend time. It just wasn't on the calendar, and I was essentially forcing it on the calendar for people that I think were receptive to it. Billy, give me some uh, some tips, because, man, it's like you're reading my mail. Um, you know, you go into that that tunnel of raising your kids, and you put all your focus there, and you're right. Like, on my list of to-do, like, I have, you know, put new grout in the bathroom way, way above any kind of maintenance of my most important relationships with my friends. So give me some tips. 
I mean, the, the easiest thing is to find a regular activity because you know what a pain it is to try and schedule anything. I mean, there I've been on so many group texts with guys where the second someone uses that phrase, like, let's throw out some dates, all of a sudden everyone's just hiding, right? Like, it's never <laughs> going to work. It's going to be a nightmare. So, you know, it's it's often these things that are that are hidden in plain sight, right? We know what they are. They're the 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 weekly hockey game or the you know the the poker night or or the fantasy football league or whatever it is like those are really just you know golf yeah the editor who assigned me this i went back at the end of the book and kind of interrogated him about why he gave it to me and it ended up being a conversation about golf where he realized that that was just something to do with his hands while he talked to his buddies about you know what was going on in their lives so you need to find these things. I use the phrase velvet hooks. It's, you know, that soft connector. Nobody needs another hard and firm and fast commitment in life. You need something like, you know, the weekly hockey game, where if you don't show up, it's not the end of the world. But it, it has to be an activity. It has to be regular. And it, it, ultimately, what you're looking for is a way to be friends with your friends. And the other thing I would say is uh, there, there's this quote I heard from the actress Mindy Kaling, where she said, a best friend is not a person. It's a tear. So if you think about it that way, you need to start thinking about adding new best friends to your life. I think in studies, we know that people, if you ask them their best friend, they're going to say someone from high school or maybe college. Yeah, yeah. But there's this sort of hard line where you kind of think like everything after that is, is these aren't your real fellas, right? But like, that's not true. You can, you can make new friends and you know who they are. Sometimes they're, they're the person sitting next to you in the office. You probably spend more time talking to them than you do anyone else in the world. But you, you put them in this category of like an acquaintance. Right. You know, so it's about, I mean, friendship, it, it works on the same sparks as romantic relationships. Like, you know who they are. You know the people you connect with. And so you just have to follow through and say, instead of just saying, we need to hang out, you need to say, we need to do this, or do you want to do this thing with me? And pretty soon, you have a way to be friends with your friends on the regular. It's on the calendar. And next thing you know, you go from being a loser like me to a guy who's, who's on the radio advising people on how to fix their lives. <laughs> Billy, thank you so much for coming on today. It's been great. I really enjoyed the book. Thanks again. Oh, this was fun. Thank you. That is Billy Baker in his new book is We Need to Hang Out. A memoir of making friends. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget the Alan Carter Show weekdays starting at noon.